0: Science Talk will begin right after this brief message.
1: We are Janssen, the pharmaceutical companies of Johnson & Johnson. We bring together cutting-edge science
0: and the most creative minds in the industry to think differently about how diseases can be not just treated, but predicted, preempted, and stopped in their
1: tracks. Solving complex problems and moving forward is about taking a different approach. It's about how we work and who we work with because at Janssen, we're creating a future where disease is a thing of the past.
0: This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on May 19th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this
1: episode, the prestige, the honor, the the dominance, the kind of perspective that one gets when they do become elected to this, uh, you know, ultimate kind of pantheon of scientific heroism, I think that has a huge impact on science and the public's perception of science.
0: That's Brian Keating. He's a physics professor at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences of the University of California, San Diego. And he's the author of the book, Losing the Nobel Prize a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. He visited New York City late last fall, before social distancing was a thing, so we spoke face-to-face at Scientific American. Losing the Nobel Prize. This is a provocative title. (laughs) So uh, tell us about your journey through this process and... Uh, folks may remember the BICEP experiment, which was a really huge deal. It has an interesting place in the history of physics. Yeah, And, and it's still going. Yes, correct. And it's still providing useful data, but there was some controversy about a particular interpretation at one point. So anyway, back to losing the Nobel Prize. How did you uh, go about doing that?
1: Well, you know, I wrote it as a how-to guide for all of us, uh, you know, who wanted to go out and... Uh, have alternatives to the books that are entitled How to Win a Nobel Prize and how, uh, you know, how how to how to succeed at all these things. And I realized, you know, at one point, how many people win Nobel Prizes? How many total living people have won Nobel Prizes? And it's, you know, fewer than how many people have visited the space station in the last 10 years or something like that. It's, it's an astronomically, uh, you know, small number. And, and I thought about that uh, when, immediately when I thought about the, you know, kind of the book's uh, events and the central theme of the book, as you say, is centered on this extraordinary epoch that I not only got to witness but I played a a decisive role in by virtue of creating the first experiment designed to go after the signatures of essentially what's called the spark that lit off the Big Bang. What force, what field, what energy source could have impelled the universe into this explosive growth that it's witnessed over the past 13.8 billion years. And this has been a mystery uh, as I describe in the book throughout. The recent cosmic history going back to the, to the early 1900s when it was first thought the universe was static by luminaries such as Einstein and then Hubble and others helped prove that wrong. The universe was dynamic. But in cosmology, it's pretty interesting. It's not only your professors, you know, in college who whenever they give you a, a homework problem, there's like actually 10 problems encoded within it. But whenever you solve a problem in cosmology, it immediately brings up at least two or three more problems. So in the case of the steady state universe, the cure, the solution was the Big Bang. But that brought up a whole host of other problems had the universe get to look how it does today, so flat geometrically, so so smooth and uniform, etc. And that ushered in a great deal of thought in the eight, 70s and 80s and that was to determine what were the initial conditions like that impelled the universe into existence and that later became known as inflation. I devised an experiment to look for inflation, We our signature of inflation, the imprimatur of inflation, which would be waves of gravity imprinted on the cosmic microwave background, the oldest light in the universe. And that experiment succeeded <laughs> and we saw these evidence for the, these waves of gravity that t- twist and torque the universe in its early state. And uh, for a very brief moment in time, it was considered by many people uh, as one of the greatest discoveries, if not the greatest discovery ever made. In cosmology, certainly, and maybe even in all of science, and this, um, you know, was sure to usher in multiple Nobel prizes. The question was who was going to get them, and uh, along the way, I realized uh, that there was a couple. There were a couple things that were going to happen. <laughs> One of which is that uh, we would be eventually confirmed to be correct by a competitor or another experiment. And by the time the announcement was made on St. Patrick's Day 2014, I had kind of been moved and relegated off to the side of the leadership of Bicep II, which is a successor to the instrument I invented. And it follows a variety of, of of some tragic events in the history, you know, of colleagues and personal losses um that we all bore, uh, that I describe in the book. But um by the time we we uh, actually made the announcement, I'd been, you know, sort of cast out of the leadership role that I had formerly played. And so I knew if we were right, I would lose the Nobel Prize because the other four people—only three people can win the Nobel Prize—and there are at least four people in front of me on the experimental leadership team. I was still on the team, and I still am formally. Um, but then there was also the alternative that we were wrong, in which case none of us would win a Nobel Prize. So I knew at, at least I was going to lose the Nobel Prize, so to speak, even though I've been, you know, hinted at being one of the top people to actually win it in the, you know, in this informal poll of physicists on the internet. Um, yeah, you were number four on yeah. that poll. I, uh,
0: <laughs> I forget who the the top two were, but they were really famous. Yes, they're theorists.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, ooh, they're, right. right. And and I'd reasoned that just as in the case of the 2011 discovery of dark reward with the Nobel Prize in 2011, the discovery of dark energy, the accelerating universe – that it wasn't the theorist that came up with the idea for dark energy you know arguably that could be ascribed to uh, to people like Einstein you know 100 years ago or more uh, with his famous cosmological constant but instead it was given to the observers so i was right. like hey i'm an observer maybe i'll skip the first three theorists in front of me and i'll get this right uh, free ticket to stockholm
0: and that that 2011 Saul Permuter, yes he he got something even more valuable than the Nobel prize it, it's not mentioned in your book right. but he got a parking space. That's right. On <laughs> he did. the Berkeley campus.
1: Yes. And now he has not only a parking space, but at the uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, he has a road named after him. Oh, and so it's literally, precise. the Nobel Prize has this outsized importance in society and Definitely. certainly a physicist. In San Diego, we have we have two streets that intersect. One is Nobel, another one's Le Bon, which is Nobel spelled backwards. Oh. And that's because of our famous, uh, the previous to, 19, to 2018, the last woman to win a Nobel Prize was at my home institution, UC San Diego, yeah. Maria Gephardt Mayer.
0: Right, and in 2018, we finally got the third, right, uh, physics Nobel uh, female. That's yes, right, Donna Strickland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I point out though
1: that you know that if the Nobel Prize wants to achieve you know equity with women, then for the next 75 years, it has to only give Nobel prizes in physics to women, and that's not too likely to happen. This year, no woman won the Nobel Prize in, mm-hmm. in physics or chemistry.
0: And you have, in addition to this really interesting story about. Uh, your work on bicep and your the, the grueling time you put in on in Antarctica mm-hmm. and your own personal journey through all this and in, in your own life. you also have this really fascinating history of cosmology that, that starts really at the at the beginning of humanity but mm-hmm. really starts to take off with uh, Galileo. Galileo, right And you talk about when he saw the, uh, what we now call the Galilean moons mm-hmm. and of Jupiter and, and, uh, and which he called the Medician moons right, because right. he was sucking up to the people with the money.
1: <laughs> we still do that. Yeah, exactly.
0: But you also spend a good part of the book talking about what's wrong with the Nobel Prize, yeah. especially in physics. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I like to cover the Nobel Prizes because mm-hmm. I think it's a way to introduce people To areas of science that they probably haven't heard about um but i recognize and agree with the fact that there are a lot of problems associated with the prize Mm -hmm. first and foremost is like uh what you just spoke about the lack of recognition of women like vera rubin who of course should have won a Nobel Mm -hmm. Prize Jocelyn Bell mm -hmm. Bell and in the other fields you know Rosalind Franklin is is the poster person for (laughs) this um but there are other problems with it as well. Yeah. The, the fact that only three people can win any one. Yeah. So, you know, if, the, if four people are on the project, somebody's getting aced out and <laughs> they probably deserve it at least as much right. as the other ones. And, um, and there are other problems. So let's mm-hmm. talk about, you know, what you see as... The problems with the Nobel in yeah. physics and what can be done to try to fix that.
1: A lot of people say, you know, well, you're just like the fox or whatever in Aesop's fable, sour grapes, right? You didn't win it. So you you just have sour grapes. Not that great anyway. They don't taste that good. Um, but they neglect to realize a couple things. One, I was, you know, kind of on the short list potentially to win the Nobel Prize. And arguably it created this experiment which led to the discovery, the experiment that made the discovery. Uh, But more than that, I was asked shortly after the denouement of the story, which maybe we'll get into later and what actually happened to our discovery, uh, I was asked by the Nobel Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences to nominate the winners of the 2016 Nobel Prize in Physics, which is not something that most people get to do. And uh, I later realized probably why they were doing that, why they were asking me. And that, that points to another problem with the prize that we can get into. But suffice it to say that when I got this document, I treated it purely scientifically. I didn't have bitterness about it. I always say, you know, if you want to see if I'm a hypocrite, just get them to award me the Nobel Prize. And if I don't reject it, I'm a hypocrite. Uh, <laughs> but, but in reality, when I was asked to nominate the winners for the 2016 prize, I went back and read Alfred Nobel's will. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I speak fluent Swedish. No, I don't. But they, mm-hmm. they have it on their website. But what's interesting from a journalist's perspective, um, I'm sure you find this interesting. They keep changing his will. They keep changing even things that, like I would agree with, to make it you know either uh, up to date. For example, they changed the awards uh, stipulation was that it should go to a, a single person who made the greatest, most important, greatest benefit to mankind in the preceding year. Those were the three stipulations. I talk about those at length. So it says mankind. In his will. I and mean, he wasn't like politically correct. He, he wrote mankind. Now they change it for humankind. If you look up his will, it says humankind. OK. So, you know, it's making it up to date. But but it's not like changing translating it from Swedish. I mean it's changing a little bit of, of some of the character. That's fine. They change it to the persons, which he didn't write. Right. Yeah. So that's you – know, as a journalist, you know, you know I, I treated it like a journalist. I treated it like a scholar would. I want to go back and see what did he want. And what, moreover, because I actually like the Nobel Prizes in a certain sense, and it's not, it's not, you know, um, I don't think it's it's fair to say only if you win a Nobel Prize can you criticize it any more than you would say not criticize, you know, the president because you're not the president, right? You don't have to be a, a laureate to criticize it. So no. I looked at it as 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 you know as a scholastic way of saying what did he intend, and to preserve the good things about it, as you and I both know, it has many good things. It brings a lot of good attention to science. I'm worried. What's going to happen to it is similar things that happened to, uh, say, Hollywood when it when it was didn't reckon with the rampant misogyny or, or the you know even harassment uh, that was endemic to it. And there are problems with the Nobel prizes. And and you know maybe hopefully it's not. Although there was a a sex uh, a, a scandal that afflicted the literature prize two years ago that caused it to be delayed, mm-hmm. uh, postponed by a year. Uh, nevertheless, I feel like. You know, who better to really kind of rally for change than someone who, you know, is in the experience and wants to use its luster uh, to burnish it to, for its relevancy in the next century, which is what my mission I think is.
0: So let's talk about it. Um, what kind of ideas do you have? You know, let's start with women. Yeah. So so
1: when the, uh, when the prize was aw- uh, originally constructed, it was for a single person. And you know, pr- presumably it was meant in, in the in the beginning to recognize inventions and awards. Alfred Nobel invented dynamite in addition to 355 other things and he was one of the richest people in the world and he wanted to quickly disseminate scientific knowledge that could be used for practical purposes. Later on that changed and I'm fine with that, that it changed to more pure research. That's what I do after all uh, and less applied. Uh, although the first one was for the X-ray, invention of the X-ray machine basically by Rankin uh and so on and um i think with with the later changes to the prize have come this sort of um effect that's known at least in many circles as, as the uh matilda effect where where a woman will make a discovery And those discoveries will be later attributed to her, you know, her male partner, colleagues in the case of Rosalind Franklin or her male PhD advisor. And that's a really serious thing. I have multiple female graduate students um, and and, uh, I'm very proud of my first – the first graduate student I have had to go on to become a professor is a woman and she is a graduate student who's a woman. So I'm the grand graduate advisor of of Mm -hmm. two women, of of a woman and and her advisor. And knowing how, how difficult it is challenging to be a woman in science. They still make up a very small percentage of the overall faculty, uh, but they only make up less than a percent of all the laureates that have won Nobel Prizes. Part of that traces to the fact that there is a sort of old boys network at work. There's a Swedish Royal Academy who has ultimate authority over things. It's basically mostly men in Swedish uh, Academy of Sciences, 500 or so people. But they also enlist outside experts such as myself to nominate winners and then there's one class of nominators who's always eligible and that's if you've won a Nobel Prize in the past. This is all in the letter to me. Um, asking me to nominate. And most of them are men. So. Most of them are men. And they have a network. And there's been a studies done on, on the probability enhancement of either working for a Nobel Prize winner or, or advising a Nobel Prize winner. And that's the Matthew effect. That's the rich get richer. So there's two, those two effects, Matthew and Matilda effects that are both come into play that I think do serve. And there's a very simple way to rectify this. There's nothing in the Nobel Prize statutes. Uh, they changed the laws in 1974 to pre- prevent posthumous awards. So it's too late for Rosalind Franklin. It's too late for Vera Rubin. They tarried too long. But it's not too late for Jocelyn Bell. I've talked to my physicists, even my friends and colleagues, like you know uh, uh, Lisa Randall up at Harvard, mm-hmm. and and you know she she agrees with a lot of it. She wrote a, a very powerful op ed after Vera Rubin died. But I said to, you know I said to her, and I've said to other people, you know um, I said why make me the argument that that uh, Vera uh, that uh, Jocelyn Bell can't win the Nobel Prize? Oh, it was already awarded to her. To... Oh yeah, I forgot. You know Newton's eighth law is that once you've won a Nobel Prize for a cat, <laughs> <laughs> you get can... no, of course not. And people say oh because she was a graduate student, but I point out many graduate students have. Nobel well, Prize. Last year's physics. Yes, exactly.
0: She was a graduate, was a graduate student, student. At the
1: time. There's nothing that prevents them from going back. And I challenge them to do that. And there's there's even in their own stipulations. They could go back tomorrow and, and award a Nobel Prize. Why don't they do it? I think it's because, you know, it's a monopoly. Let's face it. You, the fact that you and I want to preserve that monopoly is, you know, is, is, is you know, it's kind of uh, understandable. But it doesn't necessarily take away from the fact that most monopolies are concerned with maintaining their monopoly. Mm-hmm. And it is the most prestigious award of its kind.
0: So, in addition to, to the woman issue, there's the three-author issue. Mm-hmm. Maximum of three, not three-author, but three laureates. Three la- laureates, in, right. any, in any given year, in right. any given field. Yeah. So, uh, why three? Right. Why it not? originally was one. <laughs> right. Right. So, why'd they stop at three? Why not five? Or... Why not an entire institution? The Peace Prize has gone yes. to institutions, and the CERN won a physics prize, if I remember right. No, they did, no. they they haven't won a
1: physics prize. No, no group has ever won a physics prize. Huh. It's well, only it been might... individuals. So um, they, you know, might have been like a UN nuclear organization okay. or something like that. Right. But uh, but that's exactly right. So nowadays, um, you know, honored to be the director of the Simons Observatory, which is two hundred and sixty people on forty different institutions around the world. And, you know, I can't point to any one of them. I was ha- I had dinner with Barry Barish, the winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize for the LIGO experiment. And he said, you know, there were probably like 200 people on that experiment who deserved the Nobel Prize. You know, I said, well, Barry, you know, you could have turned it down. <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I, I love him. He's, he's a sweet guy. But, um, but the fact is... Uh, that it has so much prestige. It's very hard to do things to agitate for change if you're kind of enmeshed in that system. And I said, you know, if you lost any one of these 1,048 people that were on the LIGO team, you know, could the experiment have been pulled off? And he said, well, maybe one or two, but not like 200 and then you come into this calculus. This happened to my uh, late professor at Brown, Jerry Guralnik, who was one of the authors of the, of the Higgs mechanism that basically led to the, what we call the Higgs boson discovery in 2012 that was awarded to none of the scientists who discovered the Higgs boson. Um, so you get these this very awkward parceling of credit. And so then people say – again, they say, well, it would really dilute the prestige of it. Well, I don't really think so. By the way, you know, if you win uh, – you know, the smallest fraction of a Nobel Prize you can win is actually a quarter. Mm-hmm. So one person can win half and two can get the other uh, qu- quarter each. Um, but nobody ever says, hmm, oh, you know, Arnold Penzias, you know, you only won a quarter of a Nobel Prize. We're not going to put you at the head of Bell Laboratories. We're not going to name a street after you in New Jersey. You know, it's just – it's kind of ridiculous. So there's nothing that prevents him from doing it. And in fact, many of the modern prizes like the Breakthrough Prize, which Lady uh, Jocelyn Bell won about a year ago um, – can be awarded to hundreds of people, mm-hmm. and I think there doesn't dilute from it, as as it has been shown with the IPCC, who won it in two thousand six along with Al Gore, right. uh, in the Peace Prize. There's nothing that prohibits it.
0: You know, baseball has. Uh, well, I'm jumping the gun because I wanted to get to uh, the posthumous yeah, aspect, right? And point out that yeah. you know, baseball when they there there are committees in, for the Hall of Fame voting that go back and look at eras in baseball. Long gone, right. and say, well, who did we miss? Who really belongs in the Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. And so you're proposing sort of a similar kind of thing. That's
1: right, retroactive. There's nothing against it. It would only burnish their reputation.
0: So how you give Einstein, you can give him seven, <laughs> right? Uh, Galileo, you know, give the Literature Prize to Shakespeare a few times. <laughs> so where do you where do you, ha- draw do you actually make that right? Practical?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's um, you know it's something that I think distorts the way that science is done forbidding posthumous prizes Uh, in the fact that, for example, in 2017, again, Barry Barish, friend of mine, won the Nobel Prize. He would not have won the Nobel Prize, according to his own admission, uh, if the Nobel Prize had been awarded in 2016. And the reason it wasn't awarded in 2016 is because the LIGO team made their announcement 10 days or 11 days after the deadline had passed for nominations for 2016. So I was actually asked to nominate the 2016 Nobel Prize winners. I was waiting for a lot because there were rumors swirling around here and, and, and on the internet and elsewhere that there was a detection and that this would be one of the greatest discoveries since Galileo. But they didn't announce it and I had to send in my nomination form before the end of the month of January. Um, 16 days later, or whatever it was, 10 days later, uh, they made a press release that they had detected gravitational waves from a galaxy 1.2 billion light years away, traveling at the speed of light. Gravitational waves propagate at the speed of light. They eventually came into the LIGO detectors in in Hanford and in Louisiana, and they ended up uh making this detection. But if they had come in 10 days earlier, I would have made a nomination, pre- presumably, and many, many others. I think that's why they asked me. That would have included a man uh, by the name of Ron Drever, who is a Caltech physicist, widely credited as being part of the Troika, as uh, Jan Levin describes in her wonderful book called Black Hole Blues. Uh, they were called the Troika, these three physicists, Ray Weiss, um, Kip Thorne, um, who did win the Nobel Prize, and Ron Drever. But for the fact that Ron Drever died in March of 2017 – so if his, if the black hole had spiraled together with his companion eleven days earlier, and history played out, and there's no reason to say the Monte Carlo simulation wouldn't take place, right? He would have won the Nobel Prize. Instead, they go through all these gymnastics in the in in the um, in the documentation to award it to Barry instead of to Ron Drever posthumously, and I just think it's it's a shame. So there have been posthumous prizes, two of which have gone to a Swedish. Uh, <laughs> Swedish gentleman uh, in the past, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld and, and, and another man, uh, and one for the medicine prize as well. So it's, there's precedent for it. There's no reason they could have done that. They shouldn't have done that for for this physics prize, for example. And I feel like it did rewrite history in a certain way and, and presumably for Vera Rubin as well.
0: Yeah. I remember the medicine prize. It was only a few years ago and their controversy was whether uh, he died a, two or three days prior to the announcement. Yes, and there was controversy as to whether the family had maybe uh, kept that quiet mm. in the hopes that right. he would be named a Nobel laureate that year, mm-hmm. and at that point it would be too late to not give it to him right. just because he was dead. Yes, and that's you know the the reality is they decided once they announced it and it was determined that he had died just you know literally you know right. maybe fifty five hours earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, they decided to allow him to still be a recipient. And, uh, you know, whether or not the family did that is up to speculation. Yeah. but he did become a posthumous right. winner of the prize, yeah. and
1: you know so if they can do things on compassionate grounds, what would be were wrong with doing it on uh you know ethical grounds So people that like Rosalind Franklin, who really was you know and back then you know so I wrote this article for this online magazine called The Conversation, and it was the first time to my knowledge that anyone from the Royal Academy, let alone their secretary uh, gustav hansen um uh Gorin Hansen, Gorin sorry, hansen yeah. he criticized my my essay. And he's of course defending it, and in his criticism, he's saying, "Well, what do you want us to do? Go back and and give the money to uh, to Rosalind Franklin's family, or take away the money from someone else you don't think should have won the?" No-. I'm like, "You're making it all about money. That's hardly the reason that people win the Nobel want to win the Nobel Prize, right? It's worth a tenth potentially of what the breakthrough prize is worth mm-hmm. if you win it solely." Um, and so, I feel like that's kind of um, you know ascribing this venality to scientists, which isn't really there. On the other hand, the prestige, the honor, the the dominance the kind of perspective that one gets when they do become elected to this, uh, you know, ultimate kind of pantheon of scientific heroism, I think that has a huge impact on science and the public's perception of science.
0: So your book has a lot of prescriptions that I'm I'm pessimistic that uh, (laughs) anybody in a position to act on them will until a day comes, perhaps, when the prize seems to be losing Mm -hmm. its... uh, its prestige and and maybe that's already started because every year when uh, the prizes are announced you'll see a whole bunch of commentary about why this is an outdated idea and why it should be abolished Mm -hmm. or why people shouldn't pay attention to it and yet it's the only time uh when you will hear a chemistry or a physics story yeah uh not so much with medicine but on the, the news yeah. roundup at 8 a.m. <laughs> on, on your you know, right. CBS radio station. Right, yeah. You, you know, you're never going to hear a physics story right. other than yeah. the Nobel
1: Prizes were announced. Right, absolutely. So that's why you use the luster to burnish the image so that it
0: doesn't become irrelevant. That's, that's the my way I feel about it as well. And, and also, you know, you talk about Einstein. Um, mm-hmm. Einstein makes the prize prestigious, yeah. not the other way correct, around.
1: Correct. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's people wanting that, that kind of, you know, association. And ironically, as I point out in the book, he was denied for many years because of his uh, Jewish heritage. And, yeah. This uh, <laughs> is a really
0: interesting chapter in history that if people don't know about, uh, the theoreticians, it, it was called Jewish physics. Yeah. And there were a lot of people working to uh, try to deny Nobel prizes. hmm to that field and those people,
1: correct. And and I think you know when you look back in in history, and thank God, you know, there's no branch of Aryan physics as you know Hitler maintained with with previous experimentalists who were the real physicists, the Aryan physicists. Uh, thank goodness. That, but you know, the past it was plagued by this by this racism, by anti-Semitism. Um, why is it so hard to think that it could ha- suffer maybe from problems of misogyny or from discrimination? Mm-hmm. I mean, no African-American. I was just honored to be inducted into the National Society of Black Physicists. Um, uh, as, an as an honorary member. As an honorary member. you're not black. I yourself, am not black. Yeah. That's correct. I was an honor. elected as an honorary lifetime member. And I look at it and how painful it is that there are brilliant physicists that should have been recognized that aren't. And, you know, they're working to change that. And And I think, you know, in some sense – One of my goals with the book was to write the book I wish I could have read years ago. And I got very high praise from a a female reader who read it and said, I wish you wrote your book 10 years uh, earlier because when I was in college, my father said, you're never going to win a Nobel Prize. You just don't have what it takes. So maybe you shouldn't go into science at all. And she, she became you know, a phenomenal science writer and, and, and everything. But you know, by the same token, physics, what did astronomy miss out on? We don't – we'll never know. And it's because of this almost you know, idolatrous respect that we hold the Nobel Prize in for. And they're just people like me and you and you know, they're normal people. They put their pants on. You know, they, they go and they have trouble deciding on which entree to choose at, at you know, breakfast, the daily event. Um, so I think to hold them up on this pantheon, it's not fair to them either.
0: You also, in the book, this is one more interesting thing I'd like to talk about in terms of uh, modifying how the prize would be awarded. You would like to award the Nobel Prize for discoveries made serendipitously Mm -hmm. rather than looking for a particular thing.
1: Yeah. So I think some of the purest discoveries are those that, you know, like we, we discussed making independently or Galileo's uh, discoveries, Hubble's discovery of the expanding universe, um, uh, Vera Rubin's discovery of, of dark matter, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and dark energy discovery, uh, as, as we've already discussed, that there's a purity to that type of discovery because you're not looking for something. And because you're not looking for something, you're not susceptible to an inevitable bias and a prejudice that sneaks into all scientists' minds, which is called confirmation bias. The tendency to see evidence as confirming what you believe and discrepant evidence as being an aberration. You throw it out. Um, there's many different names for this. There's ways to hack, you know, results. And it's very pernicious because it's very tempting, especially when you have things like the Nobel Prize at stake. You talk about Ohm in the book. Yeah, I talk about Ed this Ohm. Is not was, Ohm
0: from the uh the resistor. Right.
1: Correct, yeah. So Ed, Ed Ohm was a scientist operating at Bell. Labs in Holmdale, New Jersey in the early 60s who made a discovery but he uh, instead ascribed that discovery to a much more prosaic source which was noise in the instrument. And he in doing so lost his own Nobel Prize to Penzias and Wilson who then capitalized on a new technology using this type of amplifier that they were able to build. Um and and did very careful calibration to show that he had not made an error at all. Actually, he had discovered the cosmic microwave background, but he didn't realize it, or maybe he was scared to actually, you know, interpret further, or he had to get it out for one reason or another. He had data
0: points he decided not to include because Correct. he didn't believe
1: them. Yeah, he he, t- he shifted the error bars, which is something we teach our undergrads never to do. And I think it's uh, I, I think it's it points to the fact that well. If you're looking for something, a lot of times you find it and and there's a temptation to do that with with people you meet you might have you know racial prejudices and things like that those are very pernicious and they're harmful to society. In uh, science, it's very pernicious as well to to allow y- your own personal predilections. Whether it's for the purity of the scientific quest, like oh, I really want to be the first person to discover this, or it's the you know it's the impurity in a certain sense. I want to win a Nobel Prize. I mean, I was told early on to get tenure, I have to be on a short track, a short list of people that could win a Nobel Prize. To get uh to get funding for an experiment has to be a field that's worthy of a Nobel Prize. Um and so all those things I you know it's 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 been the most controversial suggestion, I think, to say that. But I think, you know, in some sense it actually would bring back some purity to the to the now. There's no law that says you have to give the Nobel Prize every year either, right? There's no law of nature that says it. I'm, I'm a professional physicist saying that. Um so I think that there's there's a tremendous backlog of serendipitous things that we have not awarded that because there's, you know, like the Higgs boson. You know that was something that they looked for. They knew it would be there. The theorists made a theoretical serendipitous discovery, including my late professor Jerry Goralnik. So, I do think that that, in in terms of being a purist and um, comparing apples to apples, the things that that Alfred Nobel wanted to recognize were discoveries or inventions inventions by definition are new things that had not existed before so i think that would be restoring as i act as like an executor of his will part of that is to say kind of get into his mind of what what did he really want to do and i took it very seriously because as a nominator you know as someone you know somebody we're all going to die <laughs> and and i thought well what if i have this will and the will has a twofold hetero, heterodoxical kind of uh, component. One is practical. Money is given away. But the other is for, for um, ethical or reasons, which is to benefit the world. What if I felt like you know my wishes in either case weren't being obeyed? I mean either one I would be upset let alone both of them. So – I do kind of feel like getting back to the purity of it, that would be one attempt and it would remove a lot of bias and potentially award people like Rosalind Franklin, like Vera Rubin, like Jocelyn Bell that made purely, you know, purely serendipitous discoveries, inarguably.
0: Yeah. um, So let's get uh, back to the what happened with Bicep. Yeah. And you have (laughs) you have just an amazing line in the book. uh, The dust was the dust and the plank was the plank. (laughs) It's It's so good. It won't make sense to you. Listener right. right now, but after you tell the story, maybe it will. Right.
1: So uh yeah, I tell kind of a convoluted history of my own excursions into religion you know but the only one I'll I'll really get into right now is is that you know the book is kind of a memoir it's not just a pure popular science book it's really a memoir of what it's like to to strive for anything come up short and then literally dust yourself off and get back to work but I I always wondered you know why is it that we are so obsessed with this question of what happened at the very beginning and and i always say to people you know what's what's the most important day on the calendar to you or just to, for you personally
0: it's your birthday uh, your birthday
1: right so why is it cuz that's when you came into existence so it's as if like the world starts spinning the day you're born right wait wait uh, wait my wife's birthday. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Let's edit that out. Yeah. Our anniversary. Right. Exactly. So, but again, that's a beginning, right? Either one of those is a beginning. Um, But in the case of the universe, it's not clear. Maybe the universe didn't have a beginning. Maybe it had an infinite number of them. Maybe it did have one. And what could be a bigger question than that? As evidenced by the, you know, the number one best-selling book of all time, right? The Bible. That starts with the beginning of everything. And the question is, why? And I'm, you know, I'm not here to, I don't care if people believe or not, but but the point is, it's the biggest question of all because it's really, without that question, existence is meaningless. Like, we wouldn't be here to even be asking the question if the universe didn't exist. Um, So, I was always fascinated by these big questions and, and, and I was also obsessed with winning a Nobel Prize for a large portion of my early scientific career. When I started at Brown University in 1993, Russell Hulse and Joe Taylor won the Nobel Prize for discovery of pulsars emitting gravitational waves. So pulsars uh, and Russell Hulse was a graduate student at the time he made this, this, this discovery. So just like Jocelyn Bell, except he was a man. Uh, but anyway, the, um, the discovery really pointed out to me that, hey, I could be doing work right now that could lead to a Nobel Prize. And everyone was a buzz. We had a Nobel Prize winning professor, Leon Cooper. And, um, you know, there's kind of saturation with this is like the the all-star team, you know, the baseball all-star team. This is, you know, a much smaller group of people are, are, are physics laureates than MLB all-stars. And the question became, you know, what could I do to do that that would also satisfy this thirst I had to answer the biggest questions available? And that was to go back to the very beginning of time potentially if time indeed had a beginning. And so after graduating from Brown, I moved to Stanford and spent way too much time thinking about this idea to build a telescope that could see these waves of gravity imprinted on the oldest photons in the universe. And those are called the cosmic microwave background photons. And these photons could be encrypted with a signature of early primordial waves of gravity. Remember this is before the LIGO direct detection of gravitational waves in 2015, this is 2001. And um, and by then I'd moved to Caltech and I worked with my uh, late advisor uh, Professor Andrew Lang, and he and others encouraged me to you know put together proposals and we wrote very successful proposals to get funding, including from David Baltimore, the president then of Caltech, Nobel laureate in biology or in medicine physiology, and they gave us the seed corn like the Medici family to build a refracting telescope, which we took to the bottom of the world, Antarctica. Uh, Fast forward, you know, three or four years later, we built an upgrade to it that was called BICEP2. It was called BICEP because I wanted to be evocative of the fact that what we're looking for are curling, twisting patterns of polarization. It's just like, you know, I'm told when you go to the gym, you curl with your BICEP. And it was an acronym that stands for Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization. And that instrument uh, was situated at the South Pole. It was a small refractor. It's you know bigger than a refractor you could buy comfortably um, for optical use, but for microwaves it was cheap. It was about a foot in diameter, the lenses, and it had these uh, incredible detectors that were cooled down to almost absolute zero, making them the most sensitive detectors possible for waves of, of light that would be encrypted with signatures of waves of gravity. The logical syllogism that was being drawn by many people was that if you detected these waves of gravity, and the the cosmic scale that they would be indicative harbingers of an earlier epoch of inflation. And if inflation were true, then the multiverse hypothesis would have its first true experimental observational support. And so the stakes really couldn't be higher. The multiverse hypothesis being that our universe, like our planet, is not the only planet. Our galaxy is not the only galaxy. So maybe our universe is one of an infinite number of other universes. And that seems to be inevitable in most models of inflation. So the stakes couldn't be higher. We set out. We made the measurements from the same location at the South Pole, where I've been a couple of times. And the team was about 50 people. And all were essential to building this experiment, analyzing its data. And we took data for a combined total of six years. And then we analyzed that data, Uh, it took us about a year, and we kept seeing the signal. Uh, We we weren't, you know, uh, we weren't uh, ignorant that it was there. And we tried to explain it by every other means possible. We tried to explain it by, you know, contamination from the earth or from radio stations or, or whatever. And and also from the galaxy. We knew the galaxy had a potential contamination source due to the fact that our galaxy contains many stars. And after a few billion years, a lot of stars blow up in spectacular fashion. And they pollute the interstellar medium with micrometeorites, with tiny little pieces of magnetized dust. And those dust grains, because of the last product that a supernova makes before it explodes cataclysmically those can get aligned in the Milky Way's magnetic field, which everything known that we can see uh, with telescopes or on Earth has a magnetic field. That magnetic field can orient the dust grains and they can then emit, like little tiny radiators, polarized, curled, twisted microwaves. And we knew that. The problem was we didn't have data <laughs> at more than one frequency. And you need multiple frequencies to see both the cosmic background radiation and the dust signature. And so we thought we could rule it out theoretically And then we noticed that there was our competitor who was really breathing down our necks, but from a million miles away from Earth, called the Planck satellite. And this is a European space agency primarily led uh, project launched in 2009, built in uh, large part with uh, resources from my late advisor, Andrew Lang, and others at Caltech, JPL and they had been observing for as many you know for many years as well and they had forecast that they could detect these signatures if we could detect them but they also had the advantage they had, they had these other data that we could look at to re- reject the hypothesis that dust was causing the signal so we begged them we pleaded with them please give us the data and they refused and so I being kind of a you know suspicious person, paranoid person, and and others started to think, well, maybe they have the data that proves that the, these B mode, curl mode polarization patterns that we're all seeking, they have that. And so they're not gonna share the data with us. I mean, we wouldn't share it if we knew So I kind of felt like they were being, you know, kind of bad poker players. They they could have bluffed and said, Oh, we'll get it to you someday or whatever. Why do you want to know? And uh, but actually it turns out that they didn't have the data from the Big Bang potential gravitational wave signature, but they did have the dust data. Data. And we realized that they had present someone had presented a talk, a member of the Planck team had presented the talk, and, and you know, by law, they have to post their slides online. And so we actually took a p- image of their slide, digitized it, and turned a qualitative image into a quantitative one, and used that to really give us more confirmation that the models that we had used and the best data that we had already existing were correct. So it was kind of like an, an, an additional data point. It really wasn't the only data point. Uh, In the end, it turned out that what we had seen was dust, that we had actually detected very sensitive dust detector in addition to, you know, other types of, of signals that could lurk in there. You can't rule out that we did detect these gravitational waves, but they were subdominant to the dust curl patterns that we had hoped that we had rejected. So, then about five or six months after the initial paper release, we started working hand in glove with the Planck team. And together, the two teams showed that what Bicep had announced as evidence for the imprimatur of inflation was, in fact, dust. And um, that was, you know humiliating on one hand, it was, you know, it was an example of humility on another hand, and it was an example of good science because we were working, you know, as I said, hand in glove with this team that had been our competitors. Um, and and because of that, the synergy between the two... Now, had, do I wish that we had known this before we had the release in, in, in 2014? Of course. But, you know, that hindsight was, was clouded by these dust clouds, right? So I think the lesson... Uh, to take away is that BICEP was a phenomenally successful experiment. It is still going on. It has been upgraded many times. It has the best limits on these gravitational waves that have ever been made. uh, And it now has capability to see dust as well so in the end we we've taken you know we've dusted ourselves off and we've made these these really tremendous technological leaps and they've become the foundation i'm I'm not so involved with the bicep experiment anymore. I joke you know my next book is going to be called a Farewell to Arms because you know, I'm not in bicep anymore uh <laughs> but I think that title might be taken uh but anyway the um the the experiment goes on and has led to. A huge influence on my field of cosmic microwave background polarization, including my current experiment, the Simons Observatory, and experiments going on in China and on balloons, and and going to be in space soon. So it's yeah. it's phenomenally. And it's not like we made a blunder. We didn't leave the lens cap on. Right. We didn't claim we saw faster than light neutrinos and things you've reported oh, about. It was good data. It was great data. Right. It's the. I mean, we detected a signal, and it's it's true. It's, it happened to be an astrophysical signal, not a not a mm-hmm. cosmic signal. That's at the level of a few parts per billion of the surrounding temperature, even at the South Pole. Mm-hmm. It's just a, – its a—it's a, no one could have predicted this. If you ask Penzias and Wilson today in 1965, could you foresee this? And they'd say no way because it requires faster than Moore's law even growth of detectors and sensitivity. Thanks to my colleagues, this has been just a tremendous progress.
0: So just to wrap it up for the listeners, you have the Bible quote.
1: So uh right so so in the in the New Testament uh Jesus implores people basically not to be hypocrites. He tells people uh this is not my tradition but but he does tell people he says you go around criticizing the the speck of dust in your neighbor's eye while all the while you have a plank meaning a log in your own right. eye. Right so it's often
0: you uh Called a beam, the beam, right? But but it's also called a plank. A plank, yes. The plank in your own eye, right? And then you say, in our case, in our case it was plank with a c, like uh, Max Planck, right. uh, and, and the, the, the d- plank, uh, the Planck telescope. That's right. In our case, the dust was dust, the dust, actual dust, yeah. And the plank was, <laughs> was plank, plank. right? This great. <laughs> this was great fun. Thank yeah, you very much that's for, a pleasure uh, to meet you for finally out and talking. Yeah,
1: absolutely, my pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much.
0: That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet. Whenever a new item hits the website, our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.